Well, welcome to the Church Podcast, where we learn about one historical figure or event, investigate the Bible, and make at least one theological statement. So let's talk history. Let's talk about theology. Let's talk about historical theology. Let's talk about the church. A few things before I get started. I want to thank my wife, my friends, anybody actually who has encouraged me to do a podcast and put my thoughts out there for other people to hear, regardless of how crazy they may seem, my friends and my thoughts. Also, to those who have helped me technologically bring this podcast to you, I'd like to thank 8 Day Media, Chris Gearhart for the artwork production. I love our artwork. Martin Luther with some headphones on. Also, I want to invite you, if you're listening, to invite your friends to the conversation. And if you're interested in church history or know someone that is interested in church history, or just like what we talk about, please share this podcast on your social. Write a review. That's probably the most important thing you could do, whether it's good or bad. The more reviews that you write, the more play this podcast gets. And you could find it anywhere, um, Spotify, um, podcast, whatever podcasts are carried. I don't know why I just said Spotify. There's many, many more. So what I want to do today is I want to start what will be a three-part series in which we talk about the importance of context, specifically when it comes to things that happen in the Bible. I want to talk about the role of Near Eastern studies in the interpretation of the book of Genesis. This is very, very important for us to understand. I'm calling this whole section, this whole three section, this whole three part section of the podcast, Gilgamesh and the Flood. And as we go on, you will hear his name and many others, and you will start to realize that I'm learning a lot about history, specifically Near Eastern history. And I'm not only learning that, I'm learning how that relates to the book of Genesis, specifically in the book The book of uh, Genesis holds stories such as the story of Noah and the flood. Well, there were a lot of stories in Near Eastern culture. Actually, in the West, too, the Greeks had had a story about, about a flood, about Zeus and Prometheus and, and how they, they went after humanity with the flood. Flood stories are all over the place. And, and so we want to look and see how is the Genesis flood story different than all these other flood stories, especially in light of the fact that if there's so many flood stories, something must have happened. Now, just uh, if you've ever heard this book, Where the Crawdads Sing, Where the Crawdads Sing by Dahlia Owens, it has really dominated the bestseller list for the last two years, almost three years, I guess. It's a beautifully written book that traces the life of the main character named Kaya. Kaya is raised in a swamp just outside of town. Kaya's family and upbringing are also very different from anything the townspeople could ever understand. This is a story of life, love, uniqueness, and determination. Kaya's love life is complicated. And although the book is is not a mystery crime novel, Owens does a great job, because she's a great writer, and weaves a murder mystery into the narrative. The book, I believe, can be summed up into one statement. 
The people from the town cannot understand Kaya because they either can't or don't want to see her in her context. What's her context? She is from the swamp. She has grown up in a twisted family situation as well. She loves nature more than architecture. She loves nature more than money, nature more than fashion. The book's climax shows the difference between the two men that Kaya loved. She has these relationships with these two men, just masterfully written by Owens. But although she holds on to the memory of one of them, the one who steps into her world is the one who gets to share her life and really gets to know her. See, why am I talking about this book in Kaya? Kaya's life illustrates a truth, a truth that must be understood by anyone desiring to understand a historical event or history in general. Check this. It is impossible to truly understand and engage with an event of the past without being willing to step into that event's world. Simply put, if you stay in the town, you will never understand what and why things happen in the swamp. Much like Kaya, Owens described her heart and life, and then secondarily explained that life by detailing the smells, the sights, and the sounds of the swamp. The book of Genesis is much like this, much like Kaya, much like Kaya's story. Beautiful, intriguing, extremely important, and situated in a very real historical time and place. Genesis is part of the special revelation of God. That's what Christians call the Bible. It's a very special revelation of God. The truth of Genesis stands on its own concerning truth and meaning. We're not saying we need secondary sources to believe in Genesis or the rest of the Bible, but God in his grace has given, if we desire and if we choose to accept the challenge, many sources outside of the biblical text to bring clarity and context and meaning to what is being read. Now, the purpose of these three weeks, and probably this podcast a lot, is to argue that while ancient Near East studies do shed light on the biblical narrative, they of course our secondary sources in understanding the complete storyline of Scripture. So what I want to do is I actually want to get into decoding this book of Genesis because there are some things about Genesis we need to know before we start talking about any stories that happened in Genesis or how it compares to Near Eastern um, myths and Near Eastern history and Near Eastern thought. So... Before discussing ancient studies and how they connect, uh, I think it's appropriate for us to do a brief overview of the book. So the word Genesis comes from the Greek word Genesis, which can literally be translated as the history of origin. See, the author of Genesis had no qualms about making the bold statement, and it is pretty bold, that the book of Genesis is the true history of the beginning of all things. Now, this is not to say that other documents in the ancient world claimed the same authority, because they did, many of them. 
Actually, much of Genesis mirrors the customs and culture of its Mesopotamian origin, which were the groups, the people groups, around where Genesis was written and given birth. Like the other documents of its time, the Genesis narrative highly values genealogies and the placement of people groups, dates, what's happening, who's the king, who's not the king, who's the slaves. But with the geographical descriptions of activity in the chapters of Genesis, the author clearly placed the activities such as the Tower of Babel, the lives of the patriarchs, and the pre-Egyptian Canaanite dwelling in Mesopotamia, which means the writer of Genesis is concerned with the history of Near Eastern people groups because he saw Near Eastern people groups as what he and his people came out of and were a part of. Now, it's widely accepted that Moses, the same Moses that you read about in Scripture, that you maybe heard about, even whether you're a Christian or not, Christian or church person or not, Moses is kind of a name that people know. It's widely accepted that Moses wrote Genesis in the first five books of the Bible, or what is called the Pentateuch. So Pentateuch, first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Now, first Kings, first Kings in the Old Testament as well, verse 6-1 claims that the fourth year of Solomon's kingship over Israel marked the 480th anniversary of the Hebrews' wanderings in the desert after exiting Egypt. And why is that important? It's important because we can actually put that into an equation and find out kind of when we would think that Moses probably wrote Genesis because the assumption is that he wrote this while he was in the desert and they were in the wilderness. Kind of thinking along those lines, Moses wrote that the Israelites spent 40 years in the desert. So it can be assumed that Moses wrote Genesis and the rest of the Pentateuch between 1446 and 1406 BC. Now, there are objections. I would be remiss if I didn't tell you this. There are objections to Moses being the author of Genesis. Maybe some of these are are obvious if you've read through Genesis. Maybe some of them are not. One of the objections is that he's writing about events that had not taken place uh, during his lifetime. For example, creation and Noah and the lives of the patriarchs. And so he's, he's, he's writing these things and he wasn't there to, uh, um, to, to have a firsthand account. Well, what we believe is that the accounts were passed down orally through traditions and also through writings to him. But that is one objection that comes up. Another objection is seems pretty like an obvious objection, but another objection is that the Genesis narrative includes the death of Moses. So Moses dies at the end of the Pentateuch. So how did he write the books and at the same time he dies and he's it's like writing about your own funeral and then it, it doesn't make much sense. So it's pretty understood. Most scholars, both liberal scholars or conservative scholars or religious or not religious scholars or scholars just interested in the text itself, are satisfied with the conclusion that 
the original texts were orally passed down through the Israelites, the Jewish people, the people of God, of Yahweh, and another author completed the books by adding his account of the end of Moses' life. The book of Genesis still, it is the bedrock of the entire Bible. It's always a mistake to divorce the Old and the New Testament. I see that happen here. That happens so much. Don't just read the New Testament and don't just look for two or three things to make your life better. But look at the entirety of the Bible and you will see that the Old Testament is so, so important. Genesis gives us the account of all things, the beginning of all things, including the beginning of God's promises. It is clear that although God's glory is shown in his creation, the book of Genesis sets the stage that the Bible will be about him and about his redemption story and his glory. One of the only times the word Trinity or the Trinity, rather, is mentioned in the Old Testament is in the first chapters of Genesis where God, or in the Hebrew, who is always called Yahweh, says, let us make man in our own image. This is not to be misunderstood as a form of polytheism or there's many, many gods kind of getting together and um, a pantheon of gods like we see it with the Greeks and the, 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 then the Romans. And there's one God, and his declaration to Moses that I am, later in the book of Exodus, is the fact that his name underscores the theme set forth in Genesis that God is one God, but he makes man in the image of himself, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The Hebrews would learn the importance of this as they repeated the schema, which is also repeated amongst um, young men and women who are young men, Jewish men and women today, that God is one God. Moses wrote about the monotheistic nature of his God, and when he and his ancestors were surrounded only by polytheism, it separated them. So back to terms, just so we understand what we're talking about here. Monotheistic thinking says that there is one God, only one God, who is over all things, who is creating, who is holding things together, who is putting what is right and wrong, who is setting the tone for all of history, who is sovereign over all things. Polytheistic thinking is that there's a multitude of heavenly beings or gods or at the level of God, and they're all kind of talking together, and they're making decisions together. And Moses, as he writes the Pentateuch, says, no, 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 that's not the case. And Genesis, the first chapter of Genesis, we see that God says, let there be light. Let there be. He continues to go because he is the one that speaks. The earth does not come out of him fighting another god, and the other god loses, and then the earth comes about. He, out of his sovereign power, says, this is what I want to happen. As polytheistic creation myths, without fail, were always believed to have the world, that the stuff was created out of anger, love, and competition with their fellow gods. 
while Yahweh creates by himself for himself. Just kind of pushing that in so we get that God is one God. And he must be worshipped as such, according to Genesis. Interestingly, some religions today hold to some type of polytheistic foundation. So we, we have... We have um, we have modern religions and old religions that have made their way all the way to today that they believe that um, there's many gods or humans become gods or angels become gods. I had a question one time about, well, there's God, but there's also angels. So our angels are, are they like kind of like demigods like Achilles is in the, in the whole pantheon of the Greek um, setup. But the Bible is very clear. I won't get into it much in this podcast. But the Bible is very clear that God is God. He has created all things. He is the only person, thing, deity that has not been created. Everything else has been created, including the angels. Okay? So angels are part of the creation, just like uh, human beings, just like mountains, just like fish, just like oceans, just like everything else angels, demons, they were all created. Their creation story in 1-1 one, one through 2-3 uh, ends with the beauty of a creation in which God is good, which is also interesting. He's not just angry. He's not pride. He, he, he's just good. In 2-4, Genesis 2-4 through 11-26, uh, Adam, Adam and Eve rest and exist in the Garden of Eden. This is the inner place of all creation. And then in chapter 3, sin enters the world to the sins of pride and dishonesty. The couple, the human couple, had been seduced by a snake, who was Satan, to turn away from the commands of God. The consequences of sin would be death. God predicts his already developed plan that Jesus would come and conquer sin and death, crushing the head of the serpent. And then in 4, 1 through 16, we see a track of the progression of sin through the murder of Abel by his brother Cain and onward. Eventually, God has had enough. And then we see in 6, we start to get into the Noah story. In 6, 1 through 8, seeing the wickedness of mankind, he decides to send a flood to cover all the earth and kill every human being. But in Genesis 6, 9, through 2022, God shows his grace, which is present throughout scripture, on a man named Noah and his family by saving them from the flood waters. And this is the Genesis account of Noah and the flood. The picture of this gracious God will remain a theme throughout the Bible, even to the end of Revelation. In chapters 11, 27, and through 25, 11, as mankind continues to build new cultures, new traditions, and they kind of go out to repopulate the earth, according to the Genesis narrative, God calls a man named Abram to go out and be the father of a new nation, which God will set apart for himself. 
God gives Abram a new name, Abraham, again. This theme of God's setting a people apart for himself will mirror even the early church, what happens in the book of Acts after Jesus died and is risen from the dead, and, and the church is drawn to him. He sets the church apart. Church is still set apart from all, all the rest of stuff's going on um, and, and, and things that are happening in culture. The church is set apart. And the church are, according to scripture, those saved by the death and resurrection of Jesus. And this happened many years later from the flood, but it's been about 2,000, about 2,000 years or so ago for us. The following chapters of Genesis show how God's promise works out in the faithful and sometimes unfaithful family of Abraham. God is always keeping his promise. And then Genesis ends with the death of Joseph, Jacob's son, whose brother sold him into slavery, and then became the second most powerful man in Egypt. Before his death, Joseph witnessed the reuniting of his family as they moved into the land of Goshen, which was a province of Egypt. So the people of Yahweh had moved into Egypt, and Genesis stands unique to its counterparts, that instead of laying down the foundation of a God who wants man to serve him so he becomes powerful, Genesis depicts a God who is already all-powerful but chooses to consume and covenant with mankind out of grace. Genesis' defense of a monotheistic God who holds the future in his hands would be the foundation of the Bible. The, and in that Bible, the biblical God that Christians, as far as Old Testament, who the Jews acknowledge today. So what's our thought? That was a very fast just run through of, uh, that was a very fast run through of Genesis. And there's many, many, many things that I threw out. But I thought it was important that you understood kind of what was happening in the book of Genesis. I will tell you this. This is a theological thought for today because we've gotten into a lot of scripture. We've jumped around a lot. I want to again just say that the difference between the God of the Bible along with being monotheistic, so just him, everything else is created by him, nothing created him, he's eternal, and other religions of the time they were polytheistic many gods uh, interacting together arguing fighting bickering out of that comes creation the god of the bible is him him alone it's just him him alone say that again but the but the difference even between those gods or any god that's mentioned in him is this god's in the Near Eastern religions needed the worship of people. The gods in the Western, for example, the Greeks, and even into the, the Romans that still held, held on to uh, their beliefs and didn't see them as myths, the gods as myths, they needed people. They were propped up by their worship. They were propped up by their prayers to them. Their sacrifices allowed them to continue to live 
but the God of the Bible is sufficient in and of himself. He does not need worship. He does not need prayer. He does not need human beings. He does not need creation. He does all of this creating out of joy. He is worshiped because he is worth it, not because he needs it. Well, I thank you for uh, being a part of this podcast. Hopefully you enjoyed it today. Threw a lot at you. Okay, so uh, next, uh, next or part two, um, we're going to dive deeper into some specific stories. We're going to talk about context a little bit more. And I hope you're learning a lot, and I hope to see you next time. And uh, you'll be in my prayers. Bye.